0: Let's take our Bibles once again and we'll open back to John's Gospel to uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19, and I will be uh, in the sermon referring back to uh, chapter 18. Those portions that we read earlier. John chapter 19. I'll be reading through verse 30. Again, congregation. This is the very Word of God. And this account in particular is really the climax of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great truth on which our faith rests that Christ was crucified. For our sins. Let's hear God's Word together. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and officers saw them. They cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided My garments among them, and from My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we again ask for Your blessing upon the reading, the preaching, the hearing of Your Word. We ask for a mighty outpouring of Your Spirit that we might behold the glory of our King, that we might be readied by Your Spirit and by Your grace to dine at Your table and to know the gracious presence of our Lord and Master. We ask that it might be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have seen those ink drawings that they use in psychology tests. I can remember taking an elective psychology class in 11th grade, and that was my first exposure to those kinds of drawings. And some of you know how those work. It's, it's an ink drawing, and depending on how you look at it, if you look at it one way, you might see a, an ugly old woman. But if you look at the same drawing in another way, you might see a beautiful woman. And the question that they ask, they put that drawing before you and they say, what do you see here? And I have no idea what that's intended to diagnose. Maybe that either you're a pessimist or an optimist. I have no idea. But the question is, what do you see? And that's really the question that John is putting before us in this account. What do you see? In these apparently tragic events of Christ's passion, in these events of his humiliation, what do you see? And John is inviting us to see something in particular. There is in the sections that we read, the constant repetition of a single word. Did you hear it again and again? It is the word King. Twelve times in this section, Jesus is called the King. Three times we hear of His Kingdom. That makes fifth teen references to the kingship and sovereign power of Jesus Christ. And the question is, do you see the hour of His humiliation as the hour of His glory? In these apparently tragic events, in these humiliating events, do you see the glory of your King? Do you see the King who sovereignly and deliberately laid down His life for His sheep? And the question that is really pressed upon us this morning is, is He your King? Have you bowed to Him as your king, and, and even for those of us who have bowed to him in a saving way, we need to ask ourselves in, in what areas of my life, in what secret corners of my life today, am I resisting the loving, gracious reign of this king? This is John's great burden, this is the Spirit's great burden to see. The glory of the King. And you'll see as I move through these points, the the apparent contradiction in them. It's, It's a paradox, and yet we will see the glories of the King shine through. We see first of all, how Jesus is arrested like a king. He's arrested like a king. And again, note the contradiction. Being arrested is humiliating. And in Jesus' arrest in particular, we see this this deliberate strategy to humiliate and intimidate. If you look back at chapter 18, verse 3. We read that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a band of soldiers would have been 600 Roman soldiers. And the officers that are mentioned here, these were the temple police who were also armed. This is a huge crowd armed to the teeth. A crowd approaching probably a thousand people and the whole event had the strategy of humiliation written all over it. And yet we see the King's glory shine through. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 18, and you'll notice how John underlines for us the kingly behavior of Jesus Christ. He tells us that Jesus knew everything that would happen to Him. In other words, He knew that He would be arrested and crucified, and yet what does He do? With courage and strength, He goes out to meet the enemy. He's the one that initiates contact. And when He does that, He he asks them, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am He. Except that's not what He actually said. What He actually said was, I am I am that ancient, sacred name of God. And when Jesus says, I am, notice how His royal power is demonstrated. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. We need to imagine that scene. This is a crowd that approached a thousand thousand people and these were no lightweights. Roman soldiers. Think Navy SEALs. Officers. Temple police. Again, no slouches. And yet, at the simple mention of the name of God, They are knocked flat on their backs. Jesus simply speaks. And these battle-hardened soldiers fall flat on their backs. This is the King stepping onto the battlefield, initiating contact with the enemy and demonstrating His sovereign power over His and our enemies. Matthew Henry said it well. He said, Our Lord Jesus, like a bold champion, takes the field first. The glory of the King showing His sovereign control and His sovereign gracious care over those whom He loves. When we think about this, this scene, here are these two groups of people, this, this crowd on the one side representing the powers of darkness, and on the other side, this small group of weak, confused disciples. And where's Jesus in that scene? He's standing in between. In kingly fashion, defending and caring for His flock. Taking the battlefield for our sake, for our protection. You see, this same Jesus still does the same thing for you. Like the disciples, we're we're a small group of weak, sinful followers of Jesus. We find it hard to trust Him. We often fail to listen to Him as they did. We're faced daily with threats and trials and temptations. Friends, what threatens you today? What is intimidating you today? Is it the memory of past sins? Is it... Lingering guilt? Is it crushing anxiety or depression? Is it some trial that you just feel like is going to overwhelm you? Well, whatever it might be, the King stands in between you and that threat and defends you and upholds you. John notes Jesus' care of his own, how he sought their release, and it was to fulfill his prophecy that would just happened in the upper room, that he would lose not one of them. Friends, the King is for you in the battle, and he will lose not one of you. You see, in in each of these. Points that we will look at from this text, what is being underlined for us is that Jesus went to the cross willingly with a resolute commitment. That He was a willing sacrifice. And it, it comes out in, in a seeming passing detail. Verse 12 and verse 24, we read that they arrested Jesus and bound Him. And then verse 24, they sent Him to Caiaphas, the high priest, bound. They bound Him. We know that in the upper room, Matthew 26-30 tells us that they had sung a hymn and then they left for the Mount of Olives. And that hymn, the last hymn of the Passover feast, was the psalm that we sang to open the service. Psalm 118. And in verse 27 of that psalm, here's what, here's what they would have sung. Here's what Jesus would have sung. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. They arrested Jesus and bound Him. John is showing us the King who was voluntarily bound and led to prison and to death for our sake. But unlike those Old Testament sacrifices, our King was submissive. He was willing. And that psalm goes on to say that God's light shines upon us and it does because our sacrifice was bound for us. So Jesus is arrested like a king, but secondly, He is tried as a king. He's tried as a king and we read the trials of Jesus and on the surface it all seems so humiliating. He's treated like a common criminal. Actually worse than a common criminal because he is not given a fair trial. He is physically and verbally abused. It's humiliating. And yet, he is still being shown to be the great King. Did you catch how in John 19, John underlines how scared Pilate was? And remember, this was Pilate, the great Pilate, this man who was used to striking fear into the people that stood before him. And yet we find that the dignified royal of Jesus the King strikes fear into the heart of mighty Pilate. And three times, three times Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. He rendered his verdict. I find no guilt in Him. Here is the innocent King sentenced to die as a guilty man. And we should see the gospel significance in that. To really see the gospel significance in that we need to understand that Christ the King, who was perfectly innocent, was charged with two crimes. Blasphemy and rebellion. Blasphemy, they said, because he made himself God. He said, I was the Son of God. And rebellion. Rebellion. They said he was rebelling against the king because he was claiming to be the king. And though innocent of these charges, Jesus keeps silent and goes to die as a guilty man. And it had to be this way. Because back in the Garden in Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were guilty of two fundamental sins. Blasphemy and rebellion. They made themselves God. Wasn't that the temptation? You will be like God and rebellion. They rebelled against God their King. And now, the last Adam, Jesus, stands before the judgment seat and He opens not His mouth in order that He might plead guilty for our sins those sins of blasphemy and rebellion in order that He would, in the words of Isaiah, have our iniquity laid upon Him. And you'll notice and uh, many commentators, and John Calvin has a good um, comment on this. He notes how uh, Pilate in the one hand is, is an instrument of Satan and yet the Lord overrides it and makes this wicked, reprobate man declare the gospel. Notice his two declarations, and they're related. Verse 5 Behold the man. Verse 14 Behold your king. Do you see? Here is Jesus, the second Adam the man who is also the king willingly pleading guilty and standing in our place. So he is arrested like a king. He is tried as a king. And then we see him at the beginning of chapter 19 mocked as a king. He is mocked as a king. Again, utterly humiliating. For us to really picture this in our mind's eye, it makes us want to turn away. They play this sick game. At this point, Jesus has been flogged. He has been beaten beyond recognition. And they twist together a crown of thorns. And whatever depiction you have ever seen of this, get it out of your mind because. This was likely branches from a date tree and they had thorns that were a foot long. And they shove it on His head. And they array Him in this purple garment and they beat Him and they spit on Him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! They say, prophesy to us, Who hit you? It's humiliating. We want to turn away from it. And yet even in this cruel mockery, John is saying to us, do you see the King? Because what John does here, we need to remember that John expected his readers would know the Old Testament. And what he does here is he weaves in language from the Greek Old Testament specifically from those Suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And if you read those suffering servant songs, you imagine being an Old Testament believer and trying to make sense of that. This servant was going to be a suffering servant, but also a king. Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. Christ speaking prophetically of this experience. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 52:14. Many were astonished at You. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And yet we go back one verse and what do we hear about? This servant is the King. The Father says, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Glory in Humiliation. But then, we see amazingly that He is proclaimed as King. I, I think sometimes because we, we know the story, we know the end of the story, that these kinds of things are a bit lost on us, but this is amazing. Pilate writes this inscription as a mockery and and one commentator notes, this Pilate who is so weak and afraid all of a sudden stands firm in his proclamation of the King. What I have written, I have written. Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. It was public. We're told that many read it. It was a public place. And we're told that his kingship was proclaimed in three languages. Hebrew, not likely Aramaic, but probably a form of Hebrew which would have been the language of religion. Latin, which was the language of politics and government. And then in Greek, the language of culture and philosophy and art. It was the language of society. And and again, what's the message? Jesus is King over everything. And the fact that this is what hung on His cross confirmed that His cross was always the way that He would receive His kingdom and His throne. And little did Pilate know that that Jesus back in John 12 said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. People from all nations, all tribes, all languages would be drawn to Him and receive salvation. And then fifthly, we see that Jesus is disrobed as a king. He's disrobed as a king. Notice kind of the literary version of the camera angle. It goes from the the sign above the cross and now down to the foot of the cross. To these soldiers who gambled for His clothes. Now, nakedness is one of the most humiliating and shameful things. And you add to that the humiliation of people gambling for your clothes while you are suffering and dying. It's humiliating. And yet somehow even in this shameful event, Christ's royal glory is seen. You see, these... Soldiers have no idea that by disrobing the King, they are fulfilling His own royal prophecy. Psalm 22.18 prophesied this event and Jesus the King invites us to see what His enemies did to Him. Now, you think about This is a prophecy. This would happen. Why does Jesus draw our attention to this? It is because when Adam and Eve sinned, nakedness became the symbol of total shame before a holy God. And if you remember, God so graciously provided them a covering. Clauss Schilder comments on the significance of the king being disrobed. And he writes this, as we see our dear Savior disrobed, we must realize that God could put clothing on the first Adam only because He would one day take it off the second Adam. Christ was to suffer for Adam's sin And he had to bear the full shame of that sin. So God takes everything from His Son and abandons Him in order that we might be clothed with the garments of salvation and covered with the robes of the Redeemer's righteousness. Disrobed as a king. Willingly bearing our shame. And these soldiers were also oblivious to the fact that less than 24 hours before this, do you remember what Jesus did in the upper room? What was really his first act in the upper room? He willingly laid aside his outer garment. And he stooped low and humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet. But when he was finished, he took up his garment again and he resumed the king's place at the table. And again, to underline the voluntary suffering of the king for his people, John, with Old Testament imagery, wants us to see that this king is also the priest who gives himself a sacrifice for sins. I want you to keep your eyes on verses 23 and 24 and the description of Jesus' tunic. And I want you to listen to Exodus 28:31 and 32 that describes the seamless robe of the priest. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening of a garment so that it may not tear. A seamless garment. And John takes this language. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. Do you see your King? And then finally for this morning, we see then Jesus cares like a King. He cares like a King in the moment where humanly speaking, Jesus seemed powerless. In the moment of His greatest pain, He shows His sovereign care Of his mother. He cares like a king. Verses 26 and 27, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Have you ever thought about that statement by Jesus? Because that's not really the way you would say that wouldn't you say, mother, behold your son, and then to John, behold your mother. There's something that seems unnatural about it, and you add to that, and all all of you mothers here maybe cringe a bit at the thought of your son calling you woman. And yet this is very deliberate, this is Jesus in Old Testament sign language graciously instructing His mother. This is not the first time we hear this address. Remember, at the first sign at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, Mary comes to Him and says, the wine is run out. What are we going to do? And He says, woman. You see, Jesus is calling to her mind that first Gospel promise from Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And what He is saying to Mary here is that you must not look at Me or depend upon Me merely as Your Son, but as God's Son and Your Savior. In sign language, He's helping Mary to see Him as the seed of the woman who was crushing the head of the serpent in His sacrificial death. This is more than Jesus just providing temporal care for His mother. He's providing in the hour of His greatest pain gracious, gospel, comforting instruction. He cares like a king. Brothers and sisters, do you See your king? Have you bowed to him as your king? As we look across this, these different crowds and groups of people, we see that crowd that came to arrest Jesus, who was consumed with mob mentality. They found comfort in their rejection of Jesus Christ because other people around them were doing the same thing. There was Pilate who ran away, almost literally ran away from the truth and who for fear of losing his influence acted against his conscience the soldiers who mocked Him, the soldiers who who gambled for His clothes, who were oblivious to the fact that they were in the presence of the King and Savior. Do any of those describe you this morning finding comfort in your unbelief because those around you are doing the same thing? Running away from the truth. Not stopping to consider the claims of Jesus. Maybe it's fear of losing something. It's keeping you from being a follower of Jesus. Maybe you just have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe your mind has been somewhere else and you've been oblivious to the fact that you have been in the presence of the great King today, Jesus Christ. There's Mary and John who knew the dying love and the gracious Gospel instruction of Jesus. And as I said at the beginning, friends, we would be foolish to think that even though we have bowed to Christ as our Savior, we would be foolish to think that there aren't areas of our life right now in which we are simply saying no to the reign of Jesus. But friends, this King demonstrated here is loving and gracious. You think about those words from Jesus we often hear read when He calls out to the weary and the heavy laden to come to Him and to find rest. He says His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And what we forget is the verse before that, Christ speaks of His kingship and His reign. I don't know much, but what I do know is that we will never be sorry for surrendering to the reign of this gracious King. For when we do, we will know His grace and His love and His power and His strength. Let's bow to that King as we come to His table this morning. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank You you sent your only begotten Son. Lord, we glory in that simple but glorious truth. That your Son Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and on the third day rose from the grave. For he is our King. Lord, would you break down the strongholds within our lives? those secret corners of our hearts where we have erected strongholds against Your reign. Lord, tear them down in Your grace that You might reign. Lord, we pray that You might give us a clear and fresh vision of Christ crucified as we come to His table this day. We pray in His great name. Amen. Amen.